Hello from the newsroom of the Financial Times in London. I'm Suzanne Blimson. An international study linking the use of strong cannabis to psychotic illnesses such as schizophrenia has raised concerns about moves in the US and elsewhere to decriminalise the drug. Katie Martin discusses the findings with Clive Cookson, our science editor, and Robin Murray, Professor of Psychiatric Research at King's College in London, who led the research. So, Clive, the link between cannabis and psychosis has been suspected for some time. Is this the first study that proves a link? As you say, scientists have been gathering evidence for at least 15 years that cannabis does cause psychosis. The evidence has been gathering strength. I think this study, Robin can tell us more about it, this certainly almost nails it. It doesn't quite nail it, and there have been people who say that we're still not absolutely sure. I think it's certain from this study that use of cannabis, particularly what they call high-potency cannabis, such as skunk on the streets of London, that causes psychosis. What's less certain, I think, and again, Robin will be able to tell us about this, is whether that psychosis definitely turns into long-term mental health problems like schizophrenia. So, Professor Murray, tell us a little bit about your study. When was it carried out? How many people were involved in it? This was a study across 16 sites in Europe and one site in Brazil. We organised things so that all people who developed a psychotic illness for the first time went to mental health services in these 17 areas were seen. So we maybe didn't get 100% of all the people were psychotic, but we're up in the 95%. So it's an epidemiologically based study. And from that, we can work out the incidence what proportion of the population are going to develop or are developing psychosis in these different places. And one of the most interesting things was not initially about cannabis. It was that Britain does not lead the world in many areas, but it certainly leads Europe in psychosis. The rates of psychosis in South London are at least five times higher than they are in southern Italy and in southern Spain. So then, of course, one wants to know what are the reasons for this? And the second part of the study was to compare our people with psychosis with healthy controls. And so what one does is one interviews them at great lengths and finds out how they differ. And they differed in two ways, that the people who become psychotic, firstly, are more likely to be migrants. And this is very well known, that if you migrate to an unfamiliar country, you're more likely to be suspicious and a bit paranoid and worried. About, I mean, even me, having been in England for many decades, if things are going badly, I say, oh, the bloody English. It wouldn't happen in Scotland. And of course, the other thing is that the host population may treat you badly. So mm. if, if they keep treating you badly, you eventually become suspicious and paranoid about them. So mm. the rates in South London come down from 61 per 100,000 to 45 per 100,000 if you take out migrants. But they're still much higher than in Italy and Spain. And the big reason for this is that consumption of cannabis is much more frequent in the UK and in Holland. And the potency of the cannabis is much higher here. Do you know or suspect that that potency has been rising over the past decade or so? No, we know it has been rising since about 1996. So 
old-fashioned marijuana type of cannabis that hippies took would have 3 or 4% of THC tetrahydrocannabinol in it and nowadays it's running about 14% here. We call that high-potency cannabis but that is pretty dilute compared with what you can get in Holland. You can get 40% or 60%. You go to Colorado, you can get 80% or 90%. So it's a bit like when people discovered how to distill alcohol. There's a race to higher potency. And in Europe, the highest potency is in Holland and we are next. And in southern Italy, it's almost impossible to get high potency cannabis. So, for example, we studied Palermo which is a big city, over a million people in southern Italy, a poor city with lots of crime. But the rates of psychosis, you might have expected in a city like Palermo, they would be high. They were one-fifth of what they are here. And the only people who had ever smoked high-potency cannabis were healthy controls who'd gone on a weekend to Amsterdam. Right. Clive, it certainly sounds like this you know, particular ingredients in the cannabis are an extremely important element here. What can you tell us about how that increases or decreases the risk of psychosis in those who take the drug? The key ingredient which Robin has mentioned is tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC. And that, a neuroscientist would tell you, interferes with important systems in the brain. And certainly there are good scientific reasons for seeing why high THC might induce psychosis. It's not, of course, the only compound. There are more than 100 biochemical substances in cannabis. It's the one that people focus on because it's the mind-blowing one. The other one that people focus on is CBD, cannabidiol. Is that the right pronunciation, Robin? Heroic Anyway, CBD is the benign ingredient, and some people think that it might even have a effect of reducing psychosis. It certainly doesn't increase it. And if you look at the global promotion of cannabis products, there's really almost a tension between the two. I've not seen it put like that before. There's a high CBD products like hemp oil, which are promoted as medicinal. And then there's the THC, which is promoted as recreational. So Professor Murray, what's the scale of the psychosis how prevalent it is in London and to what extent do you think we can pin the blame on strong cannabis? We shouldn't run away with thinking that psychosis is as frequent as anxiety or depression. In general, about 1% of the population will develop a severe psychosis at some time in their life. And if you're taking daily high-potency cannabis skunk, it would be 5%. It's a bit like alcohol. Lots of people drink, amazingly, 10 pints of beer a day or a bottle and a half of wine a day and don't seem to come to any harm, but they're still at greater risk of their liver packing up. So it increases your risk. And what we found was that in South London, if nobody smoked high-potency cannabis, there would be 30% less people with psychosis which for somebody like me, that's a big deal. That would mean I would lose 30% of my workload, which would be fantastic because in the NHS, you don't get paid more for seeing more people. It just makes life more difficult. So it would mean we could treat our remaining patients very much better. In Holland, it reached 50%. In Amsterdam, where there's the most potent cannabis, the proportion of people with psychosis, which was down to high-potency cannabis, was 50%. One thing that really struck me about 
the findings was that looking at it from an individual's point of view rather than the population point of view, you were five times more likely to develop psychosis if you were a daily user of high-potency cannabis than if you weren't. Is that correct? Because it seems an extraordinarily large increase in risk. Yes, it is quite a big risk. Though if you smoke 60 cigarettes a day, you're about 12 times more likely to develop lung cancer. So it's not as high, but uh, is it worth taking the risk? Forgive my ignorance on how these conditions work, but if there is psychosis in a patient that is linked to the use of cannabis, is that condition lasting or does it just last for as long as the person is taking the drug? No. When you take the drug, if you take big enough doses, you can become intoxicated. So, for example, teenagers or students at university, their function tends to decline when they're smoking cannabis. That's because they're intoxicated half the time. And if you take really a lot, you can go acutely psychotic, but that would disappear after a week or two or even more quickly than that. But if you batter at it and you smoke cannabis five joints a day for four or five years and then you go psychotic, it may be you're lucky and you might get better within three months with appropriate treatment, but you might be unlucky and never get better. So probably some neurochemical change is happening and in some people it's reversible, but in other people you can be pushed into a psychosis from which you never get back to full function again. Do you think there's enough public awareness around that risk? No, I think that's the most important thing, that uh, if you smoke cigarettes, then almost everybody know it's risky. It's on the yeah, 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 yes, although people can ignore them. And if you drink alcohol, most people know that uh, drinking a couple of bottles of whiskey a day is risky, but people have no idea. Cannabis is the sacred herb, the glorious organic weed, which is not a chemical. It's not good. How could it possibly do you any harm? So I think that is the most important thing, that people should know that uh, all drugs have side effects. Mm. There's nothing that can have a, a powerful effect on your body or your brain that's without side effects. Speaking of the sacred herb, Clive, cannabis is known to have health benefits. Can you remind us a little more about what they are and do you think we can separate these out? That is such an important question. The area in which the health benefits are most firmly established, I think, are in intractable epilepsy. And that's where a lot of the controversy has occurred, particularly in the UK, about whether cannabis oil can be prescribed which it now can be under rather strict conditions for children with that form of epilepsy. There are a vast range of health claims made for the benefits of cannabis. We mentioned one of the most likely health-promoting ingredients, the CBD, but there are lots of other components in cannabis, and it remains to be seen whether you actually would do best with a sort of well-tailored mixture of these components or not. What do you think, Robin? No, I agree that uh, it's clearly established that there are some unusual forms of childhood epilepsy, terrible forms where children are having 30 fits a day, where mainly CBD is helpful, but some people do seem to need a little bit of THC as well. So there's no doubt about that. For pain, people with chronic pain, I think it has a mild effect. It's about as strong as codeine. It's nothing like the kind of uh, painkillers that you would get at a pain clinic. And people who have chronic pain, I think 
they have an analgesic effect. But for example, if you have some terrible painful illness or you're having chemotherapy and it's anti-emetic, stops you vomiting and you're a little bit high, well, what is the harm in that? So I think that may have some benefits as well. It may not be as powerful as an analgesic, but it may come along with other ways in which you feel a little better. So, Professor Murray, how does this, do you think, feed into the debate around whether cannabis should be legalised or regulated in the UK? Well, I'm a doctor and not a politician, so I think education is much more important than the legal status. The average 14-year-old, which is when people start smoking cannabis, they've no idea of its legal status. The issue is how much do people smoke and how potent is what they smoke. It's like alcohol, how much do people drink and uh, how potent is the alcohol that they take. If you could legalise cannabis in such a way that consumption would not increase and potency would not increase, then I don't think that would do any harm. It's just that nobody has done that yet. Wherever it's been legalised in US states, consumption has gone up and potency has gone up. And as we discussed in Europe, where the most liberal laws are in Holland, that's the place with the most potent cannabis. So in theory, it's possible. One thing I would be a little nervous about is that the big tobacco companies and the big alcohol companies are buying into the Canadian cannabis companies. The big cannabis companies are Canadian and there are some billions going into these companies from tobacco and alcohol companies who see their own markets declining. So they're looking around for alternative sources. So I think it's possible to legalise and not do harm but it would have to be very carefully done and more carefully done than it has been in the US so far. As you say, you're not a politician. Are they like very simple answers? Clive, give us a very simple answer. I think this has already been spun by Professor David Nutt, the former UK government drug policy advisor and a neuropharmacologist at Imperial College, to say this could be an argument for legalising and regulating cannabis in a way that promotes low THC. But I think that given that in the US and Canada, where the market is soaring away, and there are some mind-blowing estimates for what the global legal cannabis market could be like in 2025, 100 billion a year, I don't think this study is going to put much of a brakes on. It's an incredibly complex area of public policy. Thank you both very much. That was Katie Martin talking to Clive Cookson, science editor, and psychiatrist Robin Murray. Thanks for listening. Remember, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, you can find our latest subscription offers at ft.com offer. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.